and we're back on the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. This is David. My buddy Chris uh, has got the week off, so uh, I got some friends coming in doing the heavy lifting with me. I do want to tell you before we get started, uh, follow us on Twitter at Digital Kill, on Instagram at Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Subscribe via iTunes or um, SoundCloud and uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps us. We've gotten a lot of reviews lately and that's uh that's helping increase our exposure and we've had a lot of um, uh, new people show up uh, the last couple of weeks um, listening to us and we really appreciate that so uh, if you listen to our podcast you know that uh, Chris and I are kind of all over the place with what we listen to the last four or five weeks have kind of centered around hard rock music and uh, this week we're going to step back into the uh, down the center rock and roll as I like to call it uh, in my opinion, one of the great American rock and roll bands, along with Aerosmith, R.E.M., Guns N' Roses, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, that's how much I really think of these guys. So when I started the podcast, I kind of envisioned something like this. Uh, my buddy Anthony's here. Uh, I met him. He married into a uh, family that I'm really close with, and uh, he introduced me to Dean Gaffney at a drive-by trucker show a couple of years ago. And uh, Dean and I reconnected at a Sunfelt show, uh, I think back in February or March, I can't remember. And um, Dean is a moderator on the threedimesdown.com forum, uh, which is a drive-by truckers message board that's very active. It's a very good uh, forum. Even if you don't like the truckers, they talk about other music on there, and I've been turned on from you know to some artists that uh, aren't necessarily truckers, but because of people talking on there. So, uh, without further ado, I want to welcome my buddy Anthony Whitehead and Dean Gavney. Thanks for having us. Thank Thanks, you. guys. It's going to be fun. All right. So, whenever we have somebody new on our podcast, ask them the same two questions. So, Dean, we'll start with you. What's your earliest memory of music, and who was the first artist or band that got you hooked for the rest of your life? Uh, earliest, my parents weren't really music people, so I would think my earliest memory of music is probably Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, which my dad liked. That's a um, new one. But um, the first record that I ever owned that I got into was um, was Tommy by The Who, and uh, it just, I heard it. And on the, I heard something on the radio, and I, I begged my mother to let me buy something, and she bought a cutout single at Walgreens or something, and and uh, then I had to have the album like a week later, and so that that's that's the first one for me. Anthony, uh, I kind of grew up in a music family. My folks were from Memphis, and uh, when I was a kid, we would uh, on Sundays especially we would have the radio on um, WRBR out of Memphis. And they would play Motown and Stax classics all the time. So we listened to that kind of stuff a lot. Uh, so that kind of influenced the things I liked uh, as a kid. Uh, crazy enough, I put it on Facebook this week that one of the first albums I ever bought with my own money was uh, a Best of Fats Domino. That's cool. So uh, we, we listened to a lot of Fats Domino. Anything Memphis Soul, Muscle Shoals, uh, Motown, that was our stuff. Fats Domino, it, it's crazy. I feel like this happens a lot of times he's died and I think people now appreciate him more in the past week than right. maybe he from at least from the mainstream uh, the attention that he should have gotten right yeah he's uh, he's one of the greats all right so uh, this week we're going to talk about the drive-by truckers and like I said I think they're one of the uh, all-time great American bands and if somebody had to uh, if I had to describe the truckers to someone I would call them the Rolling Stones with a conscience um, and uh, they're just a great straight up rock and roll band 
they are capable of delivering good time, fun music. They're capable of delivering very uh, pointed political music, and they are great storytellers. And uh, some of their music kind of dips a little bit into the country aspect at times, right. and, and most of it is just uh, straight up rock with maybe sometime a, a little bit of a punk sensibility to it. So I came to know the truckers through uh, a Black Crows message board. I was in the, I guess, 0102. I was really involved with uh, it's called BlackCrows.net, and um, it was through there that I got turned on to the drive-by truckers and, and my morning jacket, two bands that to this day I still listen to a lot. And my first album was Decoration Day, and I got it I think the day that it came out. And immediately I think a week later went and bought Southern Rock Opera. Mm. And so that was kind of how I got into uh, the truckers. What, how did you guys, like, how did they pop up on your radar, and then how did you, you know, get into them to the extent to which you have? Uh, I have almost an identical story to yours. Um, living in Oxford, you may remember uh, Uncle Buck's record right. store. And it was, uh, I had to look this up earlier, but uh, it was September of 2003, and My Morning Jacket had just released It Still Moves, mm -hmm. the album. And I had heard uh, the song One Big Holiday, and I love that song. <clears throat> so I go to Uncle Buck's record store to get that album. <clears throat> and as I was there, uh, on the front display of the new releases um, was Decoration Day. So I'm talking to the guy working at the store, and he's really helpful. And I told him what I was there to get, but we just started talking about, you know, drive-by truckers. And he said, listen, if you're only here to buy one album, I would buy Decoration Day over my morning jacket and he had not steered me wrong in the past before so I did that and I had read the, the previous uh, a couple years before Southern Rock Opera was released in 2001 and I paid attention to a lot of uh, year-end best ofs and recommendations things like that and so I was aware of Southern Rock Opera but I never had uh, listened to anything off of it so I purchased both Decoration Day and Southern Rock Opera in the same day and um, the rest is that's a lot to take in at one time yeah and I'm a chronological guy so I, I didn't listen to their newest release first I went back and listened to Southern Rock Opera first all the way through and I think by the end of um, I think the third song on Southern Rock Opera is 72 about Highway 72 uh, and I was hooked from that point forward yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you uh, chronologically is the way to go right because uh, you the only, you just build right you build if you start out a lot of times with a lot of bands like if you start out with the bells and the whistles you don't appreciate right. where they started from the so, nuts and bolts so Dean how did they come on your radar so mine is a little bit more convoluted than, than either of yours um, I, um, uh, I I've been into music heavily since I was in my teens obviously and um, um but I've gone through different phases, and um, in the 90s, I sort of, I kind of fell into the Grateful Dead, and uh, I had a lot of family members into that, and then the widespread panic, and, and uh, a lot of the jam bands, and uh, it really didn't quite hit the musical note for me, but it was comforting at a time in my life, and so... As I was starting to kind of pull out of that scene, I was discovering some other stuff, and I, I, uh, um, I also had seen reviews of Southern Rock Opera. I'm like, well, this this is cool, but I just didn't get to it. And instead, I picked up on Slobberbone right around that time, and some friends. Uh, the day the Decoration Day came out, 
two friends separately within 10 minutes of each, other, of each other came over with Decoration Day and said, this is incredible, you have to listen to it. And I put it on, we listened, and Marry Me struck with me. And I'm like, I really like that song. That's right. really good. Yeah. But the rest of it didn't quite. It was. I didn't dislike it. It was just... It was one of those things that viscerally it didn't it, it didn't register, but I put on I put "Marry Me" on. Um, I want to call them playlists, but I guess back then they were mix CDs, and I put it on a couple of them, and uh, I really dug it. And then um, the next year in 2004, I had an opportunity to see them live, and I, I had, my friends had tried to. I had three friends, all of whom were trying to get me into them, and. Uh, Finally, we were in Chicago, and my one friend was like, listen, they're playing. We got to go. And I said, okay, fine. I get in there, and they get to, I want to say it was the fifth song, and they get to The Living Bubba. Like, oh, my gosh, what, what in the world is going on here? And it was like a ton of bricks. And the, the next day, I went out, and I got my own copy of Decoration Day, and... and you know, soon after when it came out, the the Dirty South, and I got Southern Rock Opera, and I got Gangsta Billy, and I got Pizza Deliverance. I mean, all within a week, to the point where people, I'd be driving into my driveway, and people would be waiting for me, and uh, and they're they they're like, okay, is it time for an intervention now? <laughs> so so it was just it, I I took a a more circuitous path to it, but once they hit me, they really hit me. All right, it's interesting you talk about you know being in the jam band scene. I feel like there's a couple of bands that aren't jam bands, but for whatever reason are accepted by the jam band community to some extent. And I think the truckers are that way. Right. I think my morning jacket right. is that way. They're certainly not a jam band, but there seems to be like this crossover, uh, somewhat crossover appeal. And you're not the first person I've heard say that about the Grateful Dead. And so uh, I find that uh, I find that interesting that they're they're because that's a. That's a community sometimes that can be a tough nut to crack to get your foot in the door with them. And there are a lot of there are a lot of old deadheads that in in the truckers community and the heathens community. Right. And um, it, it is, but and I, I you know so so my story isn't really unique. It's it's just how we got there. Maybe is is all a little bit different. But but uh, the truckers also played several of the early Bonnaroo's. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one I didn't see them. My friends went and saw them. I, they were on my radar, but just barely in 2003, and in, um, and then in 2005 they played, and I saw them then. And then they also did a couple tours with Widespread Panic, and I was seeing a lot of Panic shows. But by that point, I had seen so many Panic shows, and uh, Mike Hauser was gone; has passed away by that point. So I was going for the Truckers <laughs> at right. that point after years of going to Panic shows for Panic. My first time seeing them was at Mud Island Amphitheater with the Black Crows. Now, it was not the Crows tour that they went on in the Shed tour with Robert Randolph. I, I, this may be like a one-off, and uh, it was when Isbell was with them. And I just remember being blown away at that three-guitar sound. Right. I mean, yeah. there's people that try it, and a lot of times it gets muddied, and you can't really make it out. But they, they make it work perfectly. And... I, you know, I had a couple of their albums, but that show was just so good. And I mean, the Black Crows are my favorite band of all time. And the Truckers gave them a run for the money uh, that night. That that is for sure. Um, so Dean and I have talked about our first shows. What, which was yours, Anthony? 
Uh, my first show was not so long after I bought those first two albums. I bought it in, uh, I think it was September of 2003. I had to look this up before I came here. I wanted to be informed. <laughs> and uh, on their website, they, they have every date they've ever played listed. And so I went back and searched for it. And my first show was in January of 2004 in Oxford at uh, the library. Okay. Uh, so uh, saw them there. Uh, probably saw them there three times before they graduated to the Lyric in Oxford. Uh, but my first show was was there. They uh, there's a rumor. You know, do you know Chico Harris? I know you're talking about. Okay, he he says I don't know if this is true or not. He says that uh, he saw them play at uh, City Grocery in Oxford. Uh, not like upstairs. Upstairs to an audience of one, which was Chico. <laughs> and then they went from uh, City Grocery to Proud Larry's. All right, when they played for Chico, at what? stage in the career would this have been like gangsta billy or it had to be it had to be because uh, their first time to play in oxford was um 2003 okay Uh, which would have been decoration day right decoration day yeah yeah so i caught them uh on the uh, decoration day tour after they released it you know five six months later so at what point did you guys realize like this wasn't just a passing thing like this was a band that you were you were all in on and you were going to be all in on going forward probably after I saw them twice I, I loved the first show uh, uh, the second show was what sold me I don't know what it was exactly but uh, I had to have more of it uh, after that um, just like Dean was saying earlier the the three guitars and the, the attack of sound that you have in your face at a show is uh, just unbeatable live um, mine was after that first show, I, and I just couldn't I, I couldn't get enough. And it, it was it was, there were a few things, and I remember saying to a couple of things to the people I was with on the first show, and I said, um, one, these guys are fans of the replacements, and I don't know why, I but I knew it, and it was there was this controlled chaos thing going on, um, with the replacements. It was. Um, it was often not so controlled, and and truckers at that time was often not so controlled too. But I I felt it, and I and it spoke to me in a way that nothing had spoke to me until uh, until the replace since the replacements. So it, right away, it, as soon as like I said, as soon as I heard I can't die now, I've got another show to do. I, I wow, well this speaks to me like nothing I've ever heard before, and it, it just. I started thinking about him and started reading about him and um, actually it was probably right around that time Ant that I first saw your name and on the Yahoo uh, the Yahoo list and uh, one thing about the truckers at that time is they were one of the most one of the earliest and most active bands out there on social media and internet presence and and uh, their their friend and uh, webmistress at the time, uh, Jen Bryant, she um, she made things very accessible. And the other thing is, she was she was so approachable herself that she'd answer questions. And so the the sense of community drew you in right from the beginning. And they were also very good at that time. Um, Patterson would publish year-end lists of what his favorite records were and, and things like and that. Everything and, else, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was all, it made you really feel part of something from the beginning. And as you just, I don't think that, 
and it's interesting, maybe we'll get into this later, but I think the Truckers are one of those bands that that maybe you can listen to them and just say, oh, wow, I'm having a great time at a rock show. But if I don't understand how they wouldn't make you think. Because there's just so much going on. There's, there's music. The Sonically, there are interesting things happening, even if they're not... They can be rudimentary, but they're interesting. And it's like, wow, well, that's, that's kind of basic, but it's also very unique you don't hear that a lot and and uh, the way the guitars interacted was something that you noticed right away when it was you know you basically got three guys playing lead guitar and and I remember the first time was I, I'm thinking it's like I always thought of Patterson in those early days as kind of playing Neil Young like lead guitar it was very passionate mm-hmm. and ragged and right. great and fun and then you had Isbell, who was clearly, um, he was clearly a young master. I mean, so he was clearly a young master. And then you had Cooley, who this is this is Keith Richards. Keith he plays Richards. better guitar. Right. Right. <laughs> so it, it was you know it was just this. I don't know. It kind of, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I would call it like controlled sloppiness. That controlled sloppiness mm-hmm. that sounds good. Yeah. You know, um, that's the thing about Keith. You know, he's all over the place, but the end product. Right is is great. That's one of my favorite things is to to sit down and focus on a song, and listen to the three lead guitars. Mm-hmm. You know, and then how they blend together. They shouldn't blend together as well as they do, but it's just a it's a wall of sound, and it, and you can pick out the three uh, unique guitar sounds in each one of them. Well, let's talk about those first two albums, uh, Gangsta Billy and Pizza Deliverance. Um, going through my collection, realized I actually don't own Gangsta Billy heard most of the songs you know on shows and stuff like that but those albums from where they are now to then there's been a lot of growth um i feel like they're they're definitely more raw in nature but um the passion is there and let's talk about one of my favorite songs of all time okay. the night gg allen came to town <laughs> all right this is a like this should be in like the in congress at the library of records or whatever <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sure you and I were in college about the same time. Right. In my fraternity house, there was this video of Gigi Allen that floated around. And like nobody ever been one the one that caught with it, but right. everybody wanted to see it. Right. And it's a documentary <laughs> about him, you know, and he's like taking laxatives and defecating on stage and throwing it at people and it's all on video. And so then I see the trucker song, The Night Gigi Allen Came to Town and listen to it and basically is them telling the story of them go, of a couple reading about it in the um, in like the Memphis Flyer yeah. or whatever. I don't know. Do y'all think that song is unique? Like I, it cracks me up. Absolutely. I think, I think it's unique <laughs> and uh, it can only be told from a perspective of somebody who was actually there. Right. Uh, and I think, uh, I don't know if this story goes that Patterson and Cooley both were there. Yeah. But I think, I think yeah. they tell the story on stage that they were both there. So they never play it. I've never heard of them playing it. They, have you guys ever heard it like that? Yeah, I, had I to, saw it several times. I so. had to have heard it because I heard them tell the story of him and Cooley. When Pena. they play it, are they smiling and laughing like they realize? Yeah, how yeah funny and they it tell is? the story. It's they almost always play it in Memphis. I'm not sure I've ever been to a show in Memphis where they don't play right. it. Right, and you know because they were living, they were both living there at the time, and uh, things weren't going well for them. And it was they had moved to Memphis to make it big with Adam's Housecat right. and didn't really work out. And so. 
I get that from the imagery of the song from the first time I heard it. I'm like, well, this is, like you said, it's a story that could only be told mm, you had by, to be there. by people that had to be there. Right. You can't, you couldn't make that up. It's right. not possible. <laughs> and But yet it's, it's funny, evocative, and, and frankly, provocative at the same time. And how do you do that? Especially when you're at that stage of a career. I mean, you're writing that song in between bands and, and it's, it's a remarkable song for a lot of reasons. So those first two albums, what are you guys' thoughts on, on those two? Um, I'm a fan of both of them. I think they're really good. I think that they... Um, the, the one thing that I would say about them is um, it's clear when you listen to them that they had a lot of room to grow sonically, um, that they hadn't, they hadn't figured out all the um, nuances of their sound yet, but they were really shining as songwriters early on. I mean, Still to this day, I think Living Bubba is one of one of the top five songs that, that Patterson has wrote, and I spoke about I that already. And yeah. and it's like to and I and just to, as a little background, I mean, I'm a songwriter, and I played in bands for 20 years, and and um, um, you know, interestingly enough, I was in the same 1989 musicians best on sign band contest that the Truckers were, Adam's house cat was, excuse me, right. and uh, so. I was part of that and didn't get as far as they did. They won it, um, but it's too. You know when you write something that great, and and Patterson has described it as having the antennas up, that that the songs are out there and you have to have your antennas to grab it. And I relate to that concept a lot. And to do that right out of the gate is really something. And and I would say that cool that for Cooley. To me, um, one of these days is that way. I mean, it's just, it's gritty and, and interesting and, and just uh, the kind of story that not a lot of bands tell. So, so there was a lot of that going on early on. And I think the reputation of that time, because some of the titles were kind of jokey and the, and the album titles were, it seemed jokey. Um, that people got the wrong impression. I mean, you hear a song called The Living Bubba and you think one thing and then it's not. Right. And it's something else. And I think you hear a song called Gangsta Billy and, and it, you think one thing and it's not. So um, I think those, those and Amp, you know, you should chime in as well, but they laid a lot of groundwork for what was to come. I think obviously they were trying to find themselves. They didn't know what they wanted to be because sonically... A lot of times they sounded country. They've got uh, mandolin, they've got steel guitar. You know, I think they've got banjo in a song or two. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, they uh, came across as somebody who wasn't maybe a straightforward rock band. They they had a lot of country in their system. But I agree with Dean somewhat that I think the name of the band maybe hurt them a little bit early on. The name of the first two albums were a little awkward and they seem jokey and they have a song called the president's penis is missing and, right and and that didn't seem like uh, a band that would go on to write you know social commentary uh on cancer and you know putting people on the moon and and uh police brutality down the road right. so uh but i think that dean i agree with dean that uh, the living bubba out of those two albums has to be uh, you know that's something that somebody writes years later and obviously uh, 
Patterson had been a, a good songwriter for a long time, but right. then that was a story that resonated with him, and, and he put it perfectly into lyrics, and, and I think that he was a little ahead of his own curve uh, on that album. Yeah, I, f- I find those first two albums interesting to listen to because it the recordings are pretty raw um, compared to you know, what we would get, but... There's also a lot of humor in some like I, the company I keep is one of my favorite. It's songs. One of my favorite songs too. And my favorite line ever is "I get by on liquor, guns, and luck. I'm scared to death. Which one's going to run out first? Right. right. Uh, I just think that's genius. It, it's it's such a good lyric. So they go on from those two albums, and you guys know more about it than I do. And I'm just going to kind of say what I know. They basically hold up in an apartment with no air conditioning in Birmingham and kind of almost crowdfunded Southern Rock Opera to some extent. Is that right? They, yeah. Or they, are they like pre-sold the album or, you know, in, in exchange for... Well, so they had actually been working on that concept before the first two albums. Um, it was something that was in their heads and they were originally going to do it. Um, I think it went through various, uh, various permutations of what it was going to be, whether it was going to be an album, whether it was going to be a rock opera, what, what it was going to be. And um, so that was percolating through those, even through those first two albums. And some of those songs predate those, those albums. Um, Wasn't it also going to be a potentially a screenplay? Yeah, screenplay. And, and just, I think they went through a bunch of it and they, they, uh, um, they thought about it for a long time and then eventually it just started morphing into this this album and and sure naturally on a five thousand dollar budget you're going to produce a rock opera because why not (laughs) and like you say in a little studio with no air conditioning in downtown birmingham and uh and and sure why why not um it's so improbable that it it, uh (laughs) the fact that it works is it works is crazy but the fact that it's as good as it is, uh, it's hard to put into words. So for people that have never listened to the Drive-By Truckers, Southern Opera would, is one of the albums that I would say go pick up. Explain to people what the album is about because it's kind of has some dual meanings that weave in, and weave in and out of one another with the Skinner stuff and then... You know the George Wallace stuff. Won't y'all explain to people like you want kind to take of, that first? Dan? I think it's a it's a historical um, recollection of Alabama at a certain time because it starts out um, with a song. It's not even a song. It's a spoken word. Um, days of graduation, and um, it's about a car wreck the night before graduation, and uh, it, the it ends with uh, a line about the paramedic showing up and. Freebird is still playing on the radio because it's a very long song. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get the idea right off the bat that it's it's about Southern rock of sorts. <clears throat> you get the idea that it's about uh, you know something local and something small like like a high school graduation. Um, but then it uh, weaves into Alabama politics and uh, the first couple of uh, or first line out of Ronnie and Neil is about the uh, church bombing in Birmingham where four uh, little black girls were killed and that song alone drops uh, historical names of uh, George Wallace, uh, Bull Connor, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett and uh, and so it also talks about the uh, the Muscle Shoals connection to the greater world and, and I think the at the 
the basic sense of that song is, you know, there was a lot of bad shit going on around here, but we had a whole lot of good people uh, here too. And don't overlook the good people uh, for all the things right. that we went through. Uh, but then by the end, it goes through the uh, maybe the come up of Leonard Skinner and their stardom, uh, and the album ends with a fantastic song uh, about the actual plane crash of Skinner going down uh, in a swamp. So uh, I think that it's uh, it, there's so many things going on that it's hard to to pin that one down. Yeah, it's ostensibly the story of um, this fictional band. Beta Max Guillotine, which is essentially Leonard Skinner, and it, those lines are blurred quite a bit. And, and one thing that I, I think that you said that was interesting is that it's essentially the story of a certain period of time in Alabama, but it's also the story of a certain time. And it's not, whereas the place is important, it's also not. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it was something that I was able to relate to right away. I mean, you hear Days of Graduation, well, oh, you know, everybody kind of knows a story like that. Mm-hmm. And everybody was listening to Leonard Skinner. And, you know, everybody of a certain age saw, if not the images live, I was a little young, and, and you guys are younger than me, not those images live. We certainly saw them as we were growing up in history classes and things like that. So that... So it, it was very relatable, and then you get something. Then you get to something like "Let There Be Rock," and if there's a a rock and roll fan alive that didn't experience something almost identical to that, I, I've never met him um, because it's just, of, of course you you know you did that, and and you had a half ounce of weed, and your buddy shouldn't have been driving, and all of those things that that. And you they're puked so on somebody's uni- porch. Yeah, yeah, they're so universal, but yet, again, they're specific because you bring in George Wallace and you bring in Muscle Shoals and you bring in the the you know the, the horrible things in Birmingham of, of that era. And it's how you can combine something universal and regional and specific at the same time to me, that's a lot of what makes that record because you wouldn't... You know, some of their earliest markets where they were very successful at were New York and Chicago and places like that. And how does somebody in New York and Chicago relate to that? They relate to that because it's universal. But yet in the South, you relate to it because you grew up here. And, and right. so, so those, I mean, that's quite a juxtaposition when you really think about it. And it's hard to put all those uh, social ideas uh out there and and tell somebody I'm gonna make a rock album out of this and I'm gonna sell this because who would sell a rock album about George Wallace who would sell a a rock album about a church blowing up in Birmingham Um, who would sell a rock album on a retelling of the story of Leonard Skinner you know and it just on in in your mind it doesn't work but obviously when you listen to it 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 works you know positively it's absurd on its face and the fact that it was a $5,000 record. Right. Um, and that, you know, but they believed in it. And they went out and they sold it. And and then I think that the, the real happy accident there was, of course, they were getting ready to tour it. And, uh, and Rob Malone, their guitar player at the time, decided he wasn't going to show up. And they got Jason Isbell and, and they threw this young 
what was he at the time, 19, 20 he was, years he was old? really young, 20, I think. Threw, threw him in the van and said, let's go. And then you go out and, uh, and you tour that. Um, during a time in the direct aftermath of, of uh, 9-11. It was and, released on 9-11. Yeah, the, it was. the album was released on 9-11. And so that kind of... So it should have been doomed. Should've it should have been. been. Yeah. yeah. It should have been doomed. All right. So let's talk about that album a little bit more. Um, I find some of the f- songs on there quite comical. Uh, Dead, Drunk, and Naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great. The, the three Alabama icons. Uh, the way that that song plays out, I think, is uh, fascinating. My wife went to the University of Alabama, and uh, the first time she heard that song, she kind of her ears kind of perked up, and she's like, "That's interesting how they, you know, have done that." And I like at the end, you know, well, he's in hell, and the devil's going to do what any good southerner does and pour up some iced tea. Right. And I think that's one of the things that makes them so special is they're from here. I mean, they're from the South. They like the South. They have an ability to relate the good parts of the South with the bad parts of the South, but without, in my opinion, it, for the most part, without being real preachy. And, you know, Dean, you, you grew up in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. But you're, you're trend. How long have you lived in the South? Five years. Okay. Well, Anthony and I have been here all of our life, and you're born with this kind of sense of we get picked on a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of that getting picked on is stuff that we have have done to you know right. to cause somebody to do that but there's a lot of things get I think get taken out of context at times because people have a certain stereotype with that being said people from the south kind of have their antennas up is this somebody preaching down to me and when with some of the stuff that they talk about since it's coming from somebody that's from the south and if you, Patterson Hood opens his mouth you know he's from the south right. you know has a southern accent any of the band members right it comes a, to me Jay. it comes across much less abrasive and that this is one this is one of us let's listen to him and i feel like a lot of the things that they say if other people said them let's say he's he's dead now but let's say Lou Reed came down here and said that People are immediately going to shut him off. Here's this guy from New York. He doesn't know anything right. about life down here. These guys still, you know, Patterson just moved, but they still live in the South. And I've always thought that was interesting, the way they can kind of kind of cushion things a little bit, and people aren't immediately turned off because they are from here. Right. And on that album, there's the song, The, the Southern Thing, and it discusses the uh, duality of being a Southerner that we have, and again, so many bad things in our history have gone down that makes people not from the South look at us in a, in a negative way, but we uh, also have a lot of glory and we have a lot of pride in, in ourselves and in our region and of the things that we make, uh, sing, write here in our, in our region. We have a lot of good things to be proud of. So that you, you are, as a Southerner, you're always balancing that duality of I'm a good person, but I've got a lot of bad things, and my my heritage is not great in the past. Um, and I think that, like you said, he he wrote the lyrics to a song that didn't sound preachy, but it let everybody know that uh, you know we are not what you think we are. Um, so I think he did a good job of that. Yeah, and that especially on that album is where you really start to see that it's going to take off in the future, but it starts laying the, the foundation for that. So, like you said. Mr. Jason Isbell comes into play at the end of the recording cycle or the beginning of the tour. The beginning of the tour. tour. Yeah. And he is, what, 
11, 12 years younger than the band for the most part. Probably, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he adds a whole other dynamic in it. Now you've got another guy that has a great voice. He's a great songwriter, and he's a very accomplished guitar player. So your thoughts on when, when Jason joined the band, how do how you think he added to the sound? I think, I think that uh, as they, they were coming up anyway, so this is actually Southern Rock Opera's their third studio album. Uh, he comes on before Decoration Day, but I think once Decoration Day uh, was released, um, I think the Truckers gained a lot of new fans just on Jason alone, just adding Jason alone, because he had two songs on Decoration Day, uh, and to this day are two of my favorite songs ever. So I think uh, adding him obviously uh, exponentially increased their exposure uh, but the three guitar uh, attack, he was he's an excellent uh, guitarist, and you can't uh, deny that. He's a great songwriter. They couldn't go anywhere but up with Jason in the band. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think a couple things that are interesting about it is, is, I don't think it was my first show, but it was probably my second or third where I was talking to the people I was with, and I said, this guy's success probably doesn't lie with the drive-by truckers. Um, I realized, like I said, if he if he wants to be John Mayer, he can be John Mayer, right. and which essentially is sort of what he's become. I would I would call him a better version of John Mayer myself. I think he's a much better songwriter. Um, they're probably comparable as guitar players because I'm, I would never criticize John Mayer as a guitar player. The guy's amazing, but. I saw that from from one of those first shows, and and it was like if he wants to do that, and you know I remember my first interaction with the community. A lot of it was on the the Yahoo group, and there were people at that time that that you know Jason was their favorite songwriter, and Cooley was second, and Patterson was third, and that was really um, it wasn't how I felt, uh, but it was interesting to me. I'm like, there's an appeal there. And, and I think that that really, like you said a minute ago, that was such a perfect marriage at that particular point in time because you got some people that came in and maybe maybe Patterson's songs didn't resonate with them immediately because there's a there's a certain certain bent and and, and I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. I think they both write three different kinds of songs. I think. Patterson writes songs that are story songs with a lot of a lot of exposition and a lot of there are a lot of details in his songs and when you walk away from a Patterson song he, he's told you he's given you the, the whole skinny on it on what he's telling you about but there's a lot to unpack too and so you got to figure that out and Cooley writes songs that he can say in one line what some songwriters can't say in a career. I agree. And and then you've got Jason, who I think had a, has a little bit of both. He's able to write a single line that's, that's pretty amazing, but also some of his songs um, have a lot of exposition as well. I mean, Decoration Day is just an amazing story. Um, it, it's an amazing story, as is Outfit. So those are the first exposure that anybody got to this guy. And I think there are elements of the type of songwriter that, that Patterson is and the type of songwriter that Cooley is in there. So when you think about that, you've got two guys quite different from each other, but also very compatible. Like their stuff 
always seems to be mirror images. And then you have this other guy that takes the best of both and intends to be able to to say that as well. It's 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 interesting. Let's talk about those two guys as songwriters. Um, I was thinking about this today. How to, you know who to compare them to? I, I think they're the American version of Richards and uh and Jagger. Um, I think they're that good. And I'm not saying they write the same type of music, but they have the same type of you know synergy. I think that that they have. Um, I think Patterson may be one of the greatest storytellers that we've ever had, regardless of era. Mm-hmm. You know, going back, I mean, going back to Dylan in the early '60s, and you know Springsteen and, and and Petty and all these guys, and like I said, he has the ability to make it relatable, but also he has the ability on kind of not sick subjects, but kind of some demented stuff like the, uh, you know, the lady that killed her husband that was the right. pastor and stuff. He has the ability to write it through sometimes the eyes of the person and sometimes of just seeing it on the outside but being able to pick up on the pain that people have it makes you realize not everything's cut and dry right. like that everything people think a lot of things are black or white there's a whole lot more gray and i feel like he has just this great ability to tell a story and you don't know if he's telling it from his point of view sometimes or the point of view of somebody else crazy enough a lot of his stories are true yeah um, but talking about storytelling, um, at that time when I first got into Drive-By Truckers, I was devouring everything I could read that was written by Larry Brown, who is, was a local o- Oxford author. And Southern Lit, and the best way to uh, describe him is, is gothic. It's, his stories aren't pretty. Everybody's downtrodden. They're good people at some part of their core, but they just aren't, they're just hard luck people, you know? And so I'm reading everything I get my hands on that he's ever written. Um, and then I find the drive-by truckers who are writing songs and lyrics about the same people that Larry Brown writes novels about. And Dean said it kind of correctly. It's, it's hard to put uh, these stories into so few words, but Patterson and Cooley and, and Isbell, all three of them, put those stories that I'm reading from Larry Brown into music form. And I think that's one of the things that really... Uh, sunk, that's how they sunk their claws into me. And there's never any judgment. It's there's there there's no there's no judgment in these in these characters. It's it's you know, like you said, they're they're pretty. Some of them, yeah, a, a little bit demented. Um, the deeper in is certainly an interesting song. I mean, it's about um, incest. Yeah, it's a song about incest. It's a song about. Is it your favorite incest song? It's my favorite incest song. (laughs) So, I can't think of my second favorite incest song. Nor can I. (laughs) But but, how do you do that? How do you write a song about incest and and there's no judgment in the song. There isn't. And actually, by the end of that song, the I think one of the points is of that song is you're kind of sympathetic Mm -hmm. at the end to the person who's going to go to prison for having. You know, babies with his sister. Right. So yeah, it, it's and and you know that that's very persistent throughout the work too. Is there's all all these characters you know you mentioned, and and we're we're still talking about Decoration Day era right right about now. But you go forward to even Go Go Boots and stuff like that, and you've got songs about preachers and killing and 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 stuff like that, and and 
the listener is left to form their own opinions. They're not the wig he made her wear is 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 one too where you're you're very much left to form your own opinion on it. It's not there was a, a Dateline special on that particular story and that that Dateline they they wanted you to think a certain way. The song did not. It just it's here it is. Um, Goodsfield Road, another one. Um, you're very sympathetic to this guy who basically hired a hitman to kill himself so his family would be taken care of. And um, that's a very unique perspective. And, and I haven't read as much Larry Brown as you or, or my wife, who is a, an amazing fan of his. Um, but I've read enough to know that there's a real symmetry between what Patterson writes and what Larry Brown wrote, that it's it's the same. The people are right. very much the same. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's that's a difficult, difficult thing to do. And and yet they pull it off. I, I think there are some other bands that, that come close to it a little bit, but there's more judgment. Slobber Bone writes a lot of songs about, about murder. Um, but it, you may not be quite as sympathetic to the murderers as 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 you are in in a in a trucker's song and um, and Cooley Cooley just throws it out there with with lines that tell you that he had to be there he had to have seen something because you can't make it up but yet also no judgment. It just is what it is. It's is this guy did this, and and uh, you know I mentioned one of these days before, and and um, you know that's probably some stories that he heard, and that you had to experience that through hearing it, through learning about it. It's not something that you can go and, and be inspired. You just can't thought, think up that. Story. No, you can't come up with that. Right. Yeah, the Stroker Ace, uh, Mike Cooley. Some of his lyrics, you go, man, this is a. Uh, Scary. This is coming out of, out of this guy from this guy's head. Uh, I think of when the pin hits the shell, um, you know, which is obviously about blowing your head off. Uh, and I think it's also a, a from yeah. what I understand, is a true story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Zip City. Uh, that song is one of my one of my favorites, and I think like one of the just absolute best uh, ballads he's ever wrote was Space City. Yeah, um, off of, that's a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah, yeah. off that album. Um, Cooley, your thoughts, your thoughts on him as a songwriter? You know, I, th- I think of myself as a Cooley guy, um, but then I can't say that because then I flip back and I'm a, I'm a Patterson guy. Right. Uh, but I do tend to, to lean to his stuff uh, a little bit more, um, and I, I don't really know why. Uh, I think it's because his play on lyrics and how he twists, he, he can take a knot of words and twist them into this lyric that can mean three or four or five different things depending on how you listen to it, and I think that's um, that's relatable to me. And it's also he sings songs that are uh, relatable um, in the sense of like "Marry Me." That's a straightforward rock song. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, he I think is more I think he's more rock in a lot of ways than Patterson. I think Patterson's you know. Well, I don't know. But yet, some of Cooley's stuff has a, a country tinge. He does have a lot of country too. Yeah. But but it's just it's hard to pin him down. I think that um, he's excellent with um, making you think two or three different ways about the same subject, and uh, again, not giving you the answer to the. And he'll tell you question. that he's giving you the answer 
flat out. And I think he, re- I think he really believes it. So it's uh, when people, you know, obviously being involved in the social media community and three times down, I've, I've seen over, over the last, um, 12, 13, whatever it's been crazy amount of years, I've seen the songs dissected from every single angle you can think about. And, um, And he just feels that they're straightforward. People will come up with all these different meanings to it, but wow, that's that's beautiful. That's an amazing thing. And and I, I think the one thing, and I I know that they've echoed it, but I'm sure they're not the first ones to say it. Um, I've heard Jason say it. I've heard other songwriters say it. One thing about a song is, um, if you're a great songwriter, when you throw that song out into the world, it's not yours anymore. Right. And and I think the really good songwriters realize that because mm-hmm. it's going to be uh, it's going to be evocative. And if there's a more evocative songwriter than Mike Cooley, I, I, I've never met him. Um, it, it's you know you think of some of just the just the memorable lines and and uh, Daddy didn't pull out, but he never apologized. That tells you the story. Right. That's the, end of the that story. That sets the thing up right there. Or um, in the song Three Dimes Down uh, chicken, wing, chicken Wing Puke Eats the Candy Apple Red Off My Corvette Right. What? Huh? I mean it blows your mind You listen to it and it's, it's It tells you something very Very specific And yet it allows you to think of it from like yeah. So many different and, angles And Three Dimes Down alone The only way you know what that means is if you've ever been to a pool hall And played pool in a, in a pool table that took quarters. All right, so when you want to be the next guy up, you know, let's just say the, um, the pool table costs 75 cents. And so you say, I've got the table next. You put three quarters above the slot. So when that game's over, you walk up and put your quarters in. He didn't even have the quarters to play the next game. He only had three dimes, you know. And it's, so that's that sort of symbolism that you – would never know what that meant if you've never played pool hall pool. Right. You know? That song, I think, is one of the best Rolling Stone songs that they never wrote. Yeah, it is. That and uh, Aftermath USA. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So... I think more that more is a Faces song. Oh, that is. I do do too think of it as Faces. So we talked about Decoration Day, and their notoriety started to grow. Uh, They were touring you know nationally getting on bigger bills and, and, and playing to more people and I put out I think what in my opinion may be like their masterpiece and that's the Dirty South which was a completely uh, in my opinion a different album from you know Decoration Day it's mainly if I'm correct me if I'm wrong you guys are more well versed in it than I am it's basically southern folklore uh, songs about southern folklore to some extent a lot yeah um, the opening track where the devil don't stay that's Probably my favorite Cooley song. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. But then you get into the Buford Pusser stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have several songs on him. You have Putting People on the Moon, which uh, is just a very touching, very touching song. You know, dresses cancer and our country's at the time funneling more money into, uh, you know, rocket research than it was, let's say, AIDS or cancer exactly. or things like that. And then you have, uh, you know, The Day John Henry Died. Uh, kind of a southern folklore song by Isabel. So, Dirty South, the thought, your thoughts on that album? I think a lot of people who want to introduce people 
to the drive-by truckers. I think that's the album they go to. That's kind of the most, I would say, accessible album. It's uh, in some way, it's obviously the peak of the band uh, with Jason in the band. And uh, I think the subject matter is uh, digestible for most people. It's not, I mean, obviously they do talk about cancer. Um, they do uh, talk about uh, Buford Pusser. Uh, so the subjects are uh, still southern and they're still gritty, uh, but I think uh, lyrically and sonically it's probably the most uh, accessible to a new fan. And most of them are told from a third person, more so I think mm-hmm. than than some of the other right. earlier albums. Um, one thing I would say is I do think that it's a very natural progression from Decoration Day. Um, I think that whereas. I agree with you that it's that it's a different album. I think they're two peas in a pod in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, where you put those two on nonstop and you're getting a very good picture of what's happening in that band at, right. at the time. Um, but yes, there's a lot of, of of southern folklore going on, and and again, once again, the theme of not being judged, the character, and in, in putting people on the moon. I mean, this is a guy that most people would be looking down on if this guy existed in real life but Larry Brown wouldn't look down on him yeah he's selling and, drugs to take care of his sick wife right and and you're he's doing what he has to do he's trying to take care of his family and and that's a pretty universal theme and i think that if you listen to it there's a certain segment that would say oh this guy's a drug pusher this is a bad person but again no judgment in fact if anything it's sympathetic to the character so um, yeah, it's it, it's a it's a powerhouse of a record, and and you're right. It kind of starts right from that beginning with the with the devil don't stay, where you're like, huh, what have I got going on here? And then you've got, you know, in the middle of it too, you also have things like, um, and and I guess I'm right in my being straight with my language here as far as our our limits. Goddamn lonely love. Um, you've got you got a love song in there and it's a it's a plaintive love song um and it it shouldn't fit but it does it fits right in the middle of it because it's you've gotten into these people and you're these are just folks that are trying to get by the the guy in Buford Pusser's song and 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 the 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 um what was it, the Dixie Mafia going on and, and all of that kind of stuff. And some of the outtakes that came out of that record as well um, are also important. Great Car Dealer War and, and some of that. So it's, right. it's um, it keeps that theme going where, where you're making people um, maybe look at something from a different angle than is comfortable. Well, and you were talking about kind of the Southern folklore, and then you have the random song Tornadoes, which was actually happened to them, right. which I think is probably the only real personal song, um, I think, on the album, as far as everything else is like telling a story. The Day John Henry Died, your thoughts on that song? I think it kind of sticks out. It's it's a straight-up rocker. It is a straight-up rocker. Um, I'll be honest, I don't listen to it much. Um, I like it. Um, but there have been so many songs written about about John Henry right. um, that it doesn't... I'll listen to it and I'll tell you it's a great song, and it is. Um, but I think that theme was used so often, and there are other people... Um, 
Justin Towns Earl wrote a great song about John Henry and, and uh, some other songwriters as well. So that one doesn't stick out to me as maybe some of the others. I, I Maybe you guys feel different. I think it's a, it's a great story. We've heard it forever. Um, I prefer Johnny Cash's uh, story of John Henry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good song. And um, I, I like the lyric for some reason, uh, the whole world smelled like burning tires. Yeah, it's a great you line. Know? So, so if my memory is correct on this, there were some internal tensions within the band, I guess, toward the end of this tour, or, or it was things were starting to crop up as far as Jason and his wife, Shauna, right? So, I don't know when it exactly started. I know it spilled over into the recording of uh, A Blessing and Yeah, that's what I was getting to the next yeah. album. Um, I've heard a, this is one of the few albums that I hear people kind of are kind of down on uh, at times. I think there's some great, um, I think there's some good songs on there. Yeah, and I know treasures. I've heard Patterson say A World of Hurts, one of his, maybe not his fi- favorite song he's ever written. It's it's a great song. And so so I have a pretty strong opinion on this, and anybody who's ever read my writing about it knows, and I've st- I stopped talking about it about five years ago because people in the community got tired of hearing me. I don't like the Jason songs on that record. I think they're um, Daylight and Easy on Yourself. I, I they sound a little tossed off to me. I don't really like them. On the other hand, um, he wrote two other songs at the same time, When the Well Runs Dry and, um, I'm drawing a blank for a minute. What's TVA. And TVA, which I think are two of Jason's finest songs. Um, they've talked, all of them have talked a little bit why they didn't end up on the album like that. Um, and maybe they didn't belong. And so I'm, I have no judgment on that. But. If I take away those two Jason songs, that song stands up with their their finest work. So of course it's only a nine song album, so then that's seven songs. But but Space City is one of Cooley's absolute best songs, and and I if you really listen to it, I dare you to keep a dry eye because I don't. And uh, and and on the the other hand, also personal, very personal story, and I think the companion to that, a personal story, is. Um, uh, little Bonnie and so it, it's um, I think I think of those two songs very much alike and in terms of very personal both of them have made me tear up at various times in fact most times um, and then you've got things that are um, Goodbye is one of my absolute favorites that they never play live and I, I'd pay money for them to play it live to be quite honest with you but but that is such a heartfelt goodbye to a friend. And, and again, I mentioned earlier how some of this stuff is so universal. You tell me somebody that doesn't have that story in, in their history. Exactly. Right. And, um, and World of Hurt is just one of the most... I mean, it is great to be alive, but it's also going to be a world of hurt. And if you understand that... That helps you get through life, and that song has helped me get through more than once when you think about it, because don't be fooled, because it is, it hurts, but it's great. So I love I love that record when you omit the Jason songs. I like it a lot if you include them, if that makes sense. I think from a, from a fan standpoint, though, you, you got a, a lot of fans don't. They just don't for whatever reason, <clears throat> and and it makes you think that maybe the band doesn't also because I think Shauna has just one song on that album. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah, it's on that not, album? not to the next. Okay, album. the next album. Uh, so yeah, you take away two Jasons, 
and then you um, and the only song they really play live often out of that and they don't even play it all that much anymore is uh, uh, World of Hurt so you, you almost think in some ways that the band might not like that album either well and if and if they were going through a rough patch as a band that probably brings back right. bad memories right as well so they t- correct me if I'm wrong they took a little time off after that album didn't they um not really they toured pretty heavily in 2006 um I saw well, them a- well they did like the acoustic tour didn't they? well that was 2007 okay. so 2006 that and and uh in 2006 they went out uh on tour with the Black Crows and which was by all all accounts they almost broke up they almost didn't survive that tour the and Crows did break up from that tour. Did they? <laughs> and uh, so, so they almost didn't survive that tour. And um, things were tense. Things were, you know, there were a lot of things going on um, that I have heard bits and pieces, but don't really care about in the big picture. And um, but they were in a very transitional phase. Were they going to continue? Um, Obviously, I, I can't even imagine um, having two members of your band going through a divorce. And it was obviously foreshadowed. We go back an album and we listen to, you know, Goddamn Lonely Love. That that kind of foreshadows what, what's, what happened, you know. So I, I think that that tour in 2006 really was, I think it galvanized them in some way. First of all, it said, listen, it's probably... You know, the next spring was when Jason moved on, and they realized it was probably time for the. And um, and then they did they the the dirt underneath tours, which you alluded to, and they reinvented themselves at that point. They went out, and I saw several of those, and um, they went out and they sat there telling stories and playing acoustic, and they brought Spooner Oldham with them on on many of those shows, and it was. Um, it was something kind of unique, but it also was their songwriting juices starting to flow again. So they didn't have Jason. So now they're back down to the two songwriters. Shauna wrote a couple of songs and at, at that period, although I can't remember how many she was playing on the Dirt Underneath tour. It, it escapes me at this time. Um, I never caught one. I saw three of them. And... Uh, uh, one with Spooner, two without. In fact, the anniversary of those just was... A week or so ago, um, and uh, I, I think that that was the moment that kept them a going concern and galvanized their position to me in rock history. Is is you made it through this, you made it through this this internal strife and and all of that, and now you come out the other side. And um, with your integrity intact, with your integrity intact, and now you bring along, you know, the, the interesting thing about bringing along Spooner Oldham, who obviously was somebody that Patterson had known since he was a child, um, that added some gravitas. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's a rock and roll hall of famer. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever if you've ever seen Spooner on stage with anybody, as I did with Neil Young, so many times I can't tell you and. Um, and I have seen him, I saw him with the truckers, have seen him on his own. I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this summer when Patterson and Spooner did a little thing together. Um, it added some gravitas. And I was like, no, we're, it became this resilient thing that was going to happen with them. And, and 
you know, moving on, and you probably would bring this up in a second, but I'll just bring this on. I think Brighter Than Creation Stark was a rebirth in many ways. I mean, who knew what to expect? But it, it um, John Neff became a permanent member. He toured on, on uh, Blessing and a Curse, played on some of that songs. He became a touring member, and then that next phase, and, and um, we haven't talked about this a lot in terms of membership, but, you know, there was a lot of flux early on. And, but each, you look at it now, and each chunk has a different character because of the, because of the membership. And I, I also, I'll say right now that I find it kind of remiss that the whole time we haven't talked about Brad Morgan, who is um, Charlie Watts of his generation. Right. The guy's amazing. Metronome, metronome back there. He, he is, the, the, the best drummers you don't notice, that, in my opinion. And, He's an excellent and, drummer. He's amazing. Stepping back a little bit, do you feel like uh, the relationship with Spooner fed into the relationship with uh, Betty Levette and and possibly Booker T? Oh yeah. You know, from that angle, so yeah. they so they were exposed to some other genres. Uh, and uh, did they win the Grammy uh, for that um, Booker T album? Yes, I think so. So they were. I don't think they won for Betty Levette. I, I think, think they were they nominated, yes, but they I didn't they, win. Yeah, they won. But they, potato they, hole. They're, they're, they're actually won. Grammy winners of being the the band behind uh, Booker, Booker T. T. Yeah. yeah, I love the version of the Outcast song "Hey Ya" right, right. on that album. Um, so yeah, you're right. Brighter Than Creations Dark was getting ready to come out, and I remember thinking, "Don't really know what this is going to sound like because we're we lost Isabel, you know, and you just don't know." And I think one of the great things about the album, some people may take this as a as a put down, but I, I don't consider it. It's kind of all over the place, in that everybody has at least two songs on there. Even Shauna has two mm-hmm. songs, mm-hmm. and there again, they're telling great stories with, um, with with the songs on the album that just really make you think. Like, um, oh, what's the first one? Uh, the Righteous Path. Um, yeah. You know that song is just mm-hmm. has you know has some great lyrics to it, and the Shauna songs. Uh, I think are really good, but that album was a great uh, surprise to me. I, I found myself listening to it all the way through. Yeah, it reconnects with some of that country sound they had right. uh, on their first two albums uh, because of John Neff and mm-hmm. steel guitar. You know, it's you know they reconnect with that, and I think he was he was in the studio with with them uh, on one or maybe both of those early albums. He played steel guitar before. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was actually a. A touring member. Well, he was a touring member, um, and I, I can't—I don't know exactly when, but but he was in the Star Room by, Boys, and he was in the Truckers at the same time, yeah. and they toured together, and he played with both bands okay. early on, and then and then he played um, at least on one track on Decoration Day, and um, and I don't know about about the Dirty South. I. I it's escapes so. my memory, but but then of course he was on. Um, he played on uh, Blessing and a Curse, and now he's a full time member. By the time of Brighter Than Creation, Stark. So, um, but you're right. It, it it was interesting because they. I think they went both back and forward at the same time on that record. I think that something like The Righteous Path, which is one of my all time all time favorites, um, to me. Uh, that was a step forward. That was a song that I don't think they could have written at the time of Southern Rock Opera. Um, but again, 
it's another one of those where he's talking about himself and, and trying to move forward and everything else. And he's talking about his buddy who also thinks he's on the righteous path, but probably not so much. And so that constant theme now of people being misunderstood and, and again, no judgment. There's no judgment going on. But again, that saw, that, I think that that song also moved them forward musically. It brought them, there was a, a rock element to that that was different from the rock element of Decoration Day or, or, um, or the Dirty South. And, um, but you're right, it was all over the place. It's kind of like It's Hollow Main Street. It's quite a bit. And then yeah. it, it has a little bit, you know, it's Bob's kind of a country song. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Purgatory Line, which you could kind of fall in the realm of I just want to see his face to some extent sonically and, mm-hmm. and you know, has a religious component to it. And the songs on it are so good. And it's like they're back. You know, if they hit a speed bump with Blessing and a Curse, they've they gotten over it. they gotten over it and, you know, we're going forward. At what point did Neff leave the band? Was it before the big to do? No, it was. He um, was there a few albums. Yeah, he. Um, no, he was. He was definitely on Go Go Boots and, and the big to do. Um, he left after Shauna. Okay. Uh, Shauna left in fall of 2011. He played the entire next year, 2012, and left right before New Year's. Um, uh, in uh, 2012, when Jay was was then Jay Gonzalez right. was then asked to play um, play double duty, he he went from the keyboards to playing uh, keyboards and guitar. So John was in through that time and did it well. Yeah, got to have a multi instrumentalist. Um, all right, so let's talk about the big to do and go to go boots kind of as one because I think they were basically recorded at the same sessions. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, you know, Go Go Boots came out after the big to do. I like the big to do a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Drag the Lake Charlie, you know, the fourth day of my drinking. Those those were uh, were great songs, fun songs. One of my favorite songs I've never heard them play and I've never heard anybody else say they like is Santa Fe. I love Santa I Fe. I love that song. It's a good song. I love that song. Um, the big to do, I thought, was a, another step in the right direction for them for the most part. Yeah, they had so much. Uh, they had so much material at once that they didn't want to hold on to uh, a lot of it for a later album. So they basically recorded all the all the songs on these two albums at once, and I think they were both released real close to a year within each other. Yeah, maybe even exactly a year. A year. I think. Yeah. Um, and they, they do they do put out albums at a pretty good pace anyway, but that was even a quick pace for for two albums. So I think they uh, they had all those uh, on on standby. Well. I wasn't, I'll be honest, I was not a huge fan of Go-Go Boots. Um, I felt like there was some stuff on there that they probably should have left off, and it's just my personal opinion. Used to be a cop, I thought it was really good. Um, oh, yeah, that's, uh, even today they play that uh, a lot live, and they, that's a blistering song, live. But didn't you call it their R&B murder album or, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, and I think it was a bit mislabeled. Go-Go Boots is one of my favorites. Um, I have uh, come to the position anymore that I've given up on the ranking game on, on the records because it, I can't do it. I just can't. It's, it's you know, um, there is a, there's a lot to love on every single record, and the idea of trying to rank them is, is I, I can't do it. And it's fine if somebody else wants to, <laughs> but I can't. Go-Go Boots, to me, um, 
was I think their attempt at a country soul record. And uh, as, as that, I think it succeeds. Um, as part of the catalog, it does stick out a little bit. But uh, when it comes to the albums, I go back to it more than most. Um, and the reason is because it's different. And it's not something, it's a period of time that I remember real well. I saw a lot of shows um, during that time. I was probably seeing 15, 20, 25 shows a year during that that period of time. So I saw a lot of shows. I did a lot of traveling for them. And um, it brings up that period of time for me. And I think that, um, I mean, part of it, there, you know, obviously there are two covers on the song, uh, on the album. Uh, Everybody Needs Love is, is a great cover by the criminally underrated artist um but it um it's definitely a different record and so i know there are people that don't love it uh i don't know how do you feel about it Aaron? um i feel like it, it probably should have been one album altogether. uh but they the if they would take the choice cuts out of each it'd be a phenomenal record right. i think they had to they had enough that some of it was filler they got some killer in it, but a lot of it is is filler. And I agree with him. Eddie Hinton wrote uh, "Everybody Needs Love," which is, like he said, criminally underrated. Eddie Hinton as an artist. Uh, but then um, you got other songs like uh, "Mercy Buckets," which was uh, a fantastic song, which I had in my wedding. Uh, was one of my wedding songs. So as it was in ours as well. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> it sure yeah. was. So it's a great wedding song. So we we're kind of attached to that one. Well, one of the um, great things uh, about that everybody needs to love, I don't know if y'all remember when they were on Letterman, Letterman asked them to start playing it again. Right, right. Which is kind of, which was kind of like, you know, when Carson would ask a comic to come over to the, um, to the couch, to the couch yeah. you know, and uh, I mean, how can you not listen to that song and be happy? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just a straight up happy song, or at least it makes you feel happy. And, and, and been Patterson's grin on his face when he, when that happens yeah. is, is one of the He's like, oh, yeah. Ever. You know, we've made it. <laughs> he knew he knew what was going on at that moment too. So, um, one thing about it too is is I just pulled up the the track list to think about it a little bit. Um, I do believe is a real interesting song in the catalog, and in uh, I think that it really signaled um, something in Patterson's songwriting where he got a little bit more retrospective of his own life, um, which then. Uh, showed up on his solo record Heat Lightning Mm -hmm. and uh, I I think that you know it's a song about his grandmother it's a really really touching song Um, does it fit in the rock show maybe not but um, again that album to me stands alone Cartoon Gold is a great song you want to talk about some great one liners from Cooley in that song I mean you know Jesus made the sunrise, but it took the dog to make the story good. I mean, are you kidding? Um, Who writes that? But, yeah, it's, but it it is an outlier. There's no question that album is an outlier in the catalog. So the next album that comes out is English Oceans, which is more of a return to uh, kind of the classic DBT sound. Um, If you think, um, Primer Coat stands out to me as, Another great Cooley song on that one. Did y'all think that was more of a return to the Decoration Day, uh, Dirty South time? I didn't. I didn't feel that as much. 
I felt that it was a continuation of Go-Go Boots and uh, The Big To-Do. Um, not one of my favorites. I know a lot of people love this album, but it isn't one of my favorites. But a couple standouts that I really love on there is Grand Canyon, which was uh, written, uh, this is a longer story, but uh, they had a, a merch guy uh, named Craig, and I think his last name was pronounced Liskey. Liskey. Uh, and he was as much a member of the drive-by truckers as anybody who played an instrument, but he was the merch guy. And he, um, somehow he had that, uh, uh, very good bartender type mentality that he remembers, you know, what your favorite drink is when you walk in the door and remembers your name when you walk in. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know him well at all. I knew him, I didn't even know him, you know, to be honest with you, but he remembered me. Like at one time when I was at a show, uh, I was looking for a new T-shirt, and he said, "We've got these t- these T-shirts are new since you've been here, since you've been to a show." And I'm like, "How do you know that? You know what? How do you remember me? You know, you see hundreds or thousands of people between the last time you saw me, but you remember that uh, I might not have this or this shirt." So that song is is basically uh, he died um, the night uh, after the the first night. I don't remember the year. What's, what was the year that he died? 2013. 2013. They uh, they have a heathens homecoming every. Uh, year in now February um, in Athens at the 40 Watt and he had played uh, with his band on that uh, Thursday night and went home, night was over, had a heart attack and died Um, so this song uh, Grand Canyon is basically uh, in memory of and honor of Craig and so I always thought that was a a very good song It is a great song and and I did know Craig and he was a dear friend Um, he uh, just to, to add the personal to it that was the weekend that my wife and I got married and we had planned our wedding um, as part of the Heathens homecoming you know, why don't you tell Georgia. everybody who uh, officiated your wedding Patterson Hood officiated our wedding um, and um, so but but Craig was how do, how do I describe Craig. He's one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met in my life. What you said just just that sums it up. I remember standing um, in Madison, Wisconsin with one of my one of my closest friends, one of the guys that turned me on to the truckers in the first place and kind of gave me a lot of grief for after I really turned into a fan. He said, I told you. And uh, his name is Lester. And uh, standing in Madison, Wisconsin with Lester. And Lester went to shows around the Midwest with me, but didn't do much as much traveling as me and and by this point Craig was a friend and I don't remember what the year this was 2011 something like this 2010 and I said hey Craig you know I don't know if you remember my friend Lester and he says yeah absolutely Lester Lester the sports writer right <laughs> yeah and, and he says yeah he says weren't you telling me about so and so and and I can't even remember who he was but he was a baseball player and we had gotten into a conversation and Craig remembered who the baseball player was who was in the Atlanta Braves system at this point because Craig was a huge Braves fan and he remembered Lester telling him about this like four years before and it was just and he walked away and Lester's like that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life how in the world does he remember that he remembers he remembers um, people's kids' names. Um, he it, he could tell you just about anything about anybody, and like you said, it was it was kind of the trait of a great bartender. Mm-hmm, yeah. And but he um, he was just a, a a remarkable individual and a 
musical taste like you can't believe. I mean, he was all over the place. As a musician, he was an avant-garde musician, so which it seems a little bit funny. Um, and in that last show that he played, opening for the Truckers on that Thursday night, um, he was actually playing in a Bruce Springsteen cover band with the rest of the crew. And um, he was not a Bruce Springsteen fan, but he gave it his all and loved it. Um, but that song, if you, if you didn't know Craig, it's a poignant song. If you did know Craig and you keep a dry eye, I mean, it, it was two years before I could keep a dry eye during that song. And, and uh, it captures him. And now, you know, there's a white owl in my window. Um, every time I, I see any owl imagery, that reminds me of Craig. So, yeah, that's one of the, it's one of the greatest songs in, in, it's a great in memorial. the repertoire. And he was... So, like I said, that was our wedding weekend, and um, and I'll just close with this part about Craig. Up to our wedding, we had like a secret Facebook group about the wedding, and everybody commented and stuff like that. And he was like, "I'm gonna wear a special hat, and we're gonna do a dance, and we're gonna do this." He was so excited about our wedding that that it was um, it was really touching to us and and again he was he was just such a good friend and then he passed away and we um two things one we considered we're like should we cancel the wedding what what should we do and of course the band went through the same permutations that day because they had a show to play on friday night and everybody had two more shows to play two more but that that night was just a really tough night and um so but it's like everybody said and people in the band and, and Jen Bryant, who I mentioned, mentioned before, um, who was so responsible for their social media presence, um, she's like, he'll come down and he'll smite you. Are you kidding? No, you're going to have the wedding and it's going to go on. And, and of course, you know, Patterson was the officiant and, and everything else. So it was, um, and of course the band played and how they played to this day, I don't know how is it was just one of the, I don't, I barely remember it. I mean, I remember it happening. I remember how I feel, but I don't remember much about the show. Right. But, but that song, for somebody that lived that and knew Craig, brings up all of it. But, again, I, like I said, having a universal quality, I think that song can appeal to somebody that never knew who Craig was. Right, I agree. So... Let's move on to their last album as we wrap this up. And uh, probably their most controversial album, American Band. Their first album without a West Free drawing uh, on the front, which if you just pick the album up, you probably think this is different. Um, the first song, I think the first single was What It Means, uh, which is kind of taking into account a lot of the racial unrest in America with the Ferguson incident and, and a few others. And I was telling Dean uh, before you got here, Anthony, I'm normally not a big fan of these um, of protest music because I feel like so much of it suffers sonically. You know, I just think of Woody Guthrie stringing, a, you know, strumming a guitar. Right. Whereas this was not that. No. Uh, like on Ever South, and we were talking, Jay Gonzalez deserves to be the MVP of this album. Oh yeah. His touches they just add so much to it. And we were saying. You know, this is something that they've lacked consistently. Um, I'm shocked at how much I loved um, American Band. Uh, Raymond Cassiano, the lead, the lead song, 
go research what that song is about. Right. Um, it's, it's very. It just sounds like a straight up rock song, but there's a lot. There's a lot to that. And I go to. Uh, I like it when the sun don't don't shine. I love that song too. Well, and once I figured out what the song was about, it made it just that much more. Right. Um, this song, this album, I think is different sonically all over the place. There's, you know, where the sun don't shine. There's a lot of piano in that. Uh, the song Baggage. Um, I think it's their most unique album lyrically and sonically that they've ever put out. Well, I don't. I don't want to say that it's a return to Drive-By Truckers, previous Drive-By Truckers. Now, it's not exactly a return. I think it's a, a step forward. Like when you hear it, like if they, if they sung no words, you would know that this is, you know, sonically a Drive-By Truckers song or Drive-By Truckers album. Um, but uh, yes, it for me from the previous couple of records before that it was a return to form of sorts for me and uh i just think uh, especially on that first song uh, raymond cassiano it, it's just it soars is the best way to to describe it and then um obviously it's a it's a social uh commentary uh, album it's a protest album i think it's uh <clears throat> without getting into too many of the details it's been a uh, it, there's a division amongst the fans on how to um uh, respond to uh, what they say on the album but I think that was kind of the whole point because all of their career they've been political since the very first uh, song they ever put out but it's always been undercover of sorts it's always been blended into a, a story that you could take either way but uh, they uh, there are no holes bar on their social commentary on this album and, and there's no doubt about how they feel about certain things and I think that is great in a lot of ways but I think that turns off uh, a lot of people in a lot of ways too though yeah especially in this day and time when everybody gets their feelings hurt yeah. one way or the yeah, other everybody's feelings are hurt yeah I um well first of all I think that a couple of things when you talk about sonically one we haven't one thing we haven't spoken about at all today is um is David Barbie uh David Barbie is is as much a member of the band as as anybody else and he started putting his mark on their sound with um with doing the remixes on Southern Rock Opera and has produced every single record since. Um, for those who don't know David Barbie, David Barbie um, played in uh, in some great Athens bands, and then he also played with Bob Mold and Sugar in the short-lived power pop wonderfulness <laughs> that was that band. And... Um, uh, I think the the unique thing about about David Barbie, one of the things that I sometimes don't like about producers is producers that have a sound, and they um, and I'm not going to say particularly who I'm talking about here because I don't think it's germane to the conversation, but I think there are certain producers that have a certain sound that that they come into the artist. And you can tell, hey, this was produced by so-and-so. This was produced by so-and-so. Uh, and they have a signature. Um, one, one prominent producer has, he likes to talk about how he thinks the most important thing on an album is vocals. And he works on those vocals. And, and the vocals have to be out in front of everything else. And one of the things about that producer that I don't care for is I think some of the music in the background suffers. I think that in you tend to hear the... He's pretty good with the rhythm section, and not so good with um, with everything in between. And then you got the vocals. So 
um, that bothers me. And then you have guys who have a what I would call a wash of sound, and you know that wash. And this goes back to say Phil Spector <laughs> days. You know, you could tell you knew that Phil Spector produced a record. And um, I said I wasn't going to name names, but that actually illustrates <laughs> it pretty well. And so, one thing about David Barbie is. I think David Barbie lets the songs and the mood of the sessions um, dictate what the album sounds like. Does he have certain traits? Sure, but they're not prominent to me. Instead, he just lets everything go. Um, you know, many of the many of the records were were recorded in the same room. American Band was recorded mostly in Nashville. With uh, finished up at. Uh, David Barbie's studio in Athens, um, but they were but it was a little bit different of room, and they had just when they went to record the bulk of those songs, they had just come off of a two night run um, in um, in Nashville, and then they went immediately off that two night run and and went into the studio. They were as tight as I can ever remember. Um, the other thing that to back up just a little bit too is this was the second album that uh, Matt Patton. Of uh, of the Dexatines, I was going to say formerly, but not formerly, because he still plays <laughs> yeah. in the Dexatines. Um, that that Matt Patton was was on bass, and I think Matt and Brad Morgan, who we mentioned earlier, formed such a solid foundation. And unlike um, Shauna Tucker, who's an excellent bass player, Matt comes from a completely different school. Matt comes from the school of punk. He was, uh, you know, he had a, a long-time punk band and then played in the Dexatines, which owe as much to punk as they owe to anything else. And so so he has a different sound. His sound is, whereas Shauna definitely comes from, um, and it's amazing we haven't brought this up yet, comes from the David Hood school of bass playing of, of the Swampers and Patterson's dad. And whereas Matt comes from the Ramones and the Clash and 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 all of that and there's there's so much of that in his playing and I think that when you get to a by the time you get to American Band these guys were tight I mean yeah very I mean tight. tight and they had these songs and and Patterson talks about how his first song was for the album ended up being what it means which he didn't even realize he he was writing for the album and um you know, it's a story that a lot of people want to attribute some preachiness to it. It's not. In fact, he even says so. Don't look for me for answers because I don't know what it means. And it, it's, it's really... It's an open-ended question. Yeah, it's an open-ended question. It's like, we need to have this conversation. And then he said that he realized which direction the record was going when Cooley came into him with Ramon Cassiano. And Ramon Cassiano is also an open-ended question from the standpoint is is it's like he takes a you know uh he takes something that happened in the 1930s and shows how it shaped everything going forward and has made for this dichotomy in our society and he's also sort of saying what it means he's like well, you know what's going on here so those two those two songs to me form the form the core of that record and you got a really tight band you've got people with something to say 
you've got a moment in time where our country couldn't possibly be more divided and and now you have this record and um, it's been their biggest selling record I think that um, it probably divided some of the fan base but I think they picked up more than than they lost and um, you know, if I was still in the ranking records business with the drive-by truckers or any band for that matter, it would be right up towards the top. It, it's it's stunning. I agree. So, as we wrap it up, what do you guys think the future of the band holds? Do you, do you think they continue with the same themes on um, American Band, or do they kind of go back a little bit on that, maybe half political, half storytelling, or... I think they're always going to tell stories. No matter what they do, they'll, they'll tell stories. Now, whether those stories are overtly political, uh, I don't know. They, they may have learned something from from American band that might keep telling the same political stories. Because I think, you know, I don't think they want to be a protest band, but, you know, obviously this is a protest album. But I think they know stories, and they'll continue to still tell stories, and they'll... Uh, even though Patterson has moved to Portland, Oregon, I think they'll still be rooted a lot in Southern stories, but you know they'll, they'll be rooted in human stories uh, either way you go. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and I want to backtrack for one second because one thing we didn't mention about American Band was, um, was the song Ever South, which is um, not really a, a political song, but yet it is. Because when you listen to the experiences of, of Patterson's family and, and the history of the family and who is being ostracized and, and everything else, it really does feed into the narrative and fits real well in the album. And the other thing is going back to what we said really early on, we were talking about the Southern thing. It's the Southern thing grown up. Mm. And, and to me, that's really interesting. And so as you're moving forward... I think they're going to do those things. I think, first of all, um, you know, these are guys that are, I'm 56 years old, Patterson's 53. These are guys that are growing older. They have families. They have um, they have concerns. They're very concerned about the world we live in for obvious reasons. So the political thing is going to be there. Um, Patterson is, on December 15th, they're releasing a single of what it means, which was, uh, which was, um, Recorded this year at um, Newport at, Folk New, at Newport Folk Festival, and the other side of that is a song called "The Perilous Night," which they've been playing for a month now, or they're, now they're done touring for the year. But they they played it the last month of touring, and it is maybe more overtly political than anything on American Band, um, and they've recorded it. It's going to come out on on that, so. There's still something to say politically, but I don't think, and even American Band shows this, it's not, they want to talk about what's important to say. And that might be at the moment political. Maybe tomorrow it's not political. Maybe it's about their lives, or maybe it's about growing older. Um, English Oceans, to me, had a lot about growing older on it. And um, and I think there was some of that on... on uh, on American Band as well, so I think you're going to see some, some of that. But but these guys are, they're ever evolving, and um, so will it be political? Will they build on that? 
Probably not. You're not going to see American Band 2 because you didn't see Decoration Day 2. You didn't see Dirty South 2. You didn't see English Oceans 2. But there's always on every album you see something that moves forward to the next album. And so in that sense, yeah. But in the other sense, no, it's, it's, it's going to be whatever happens next. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I can't wait to hear the song you're talking about. And uh, hopefully in the next year or so, we'll get a new, new album uh, from them. So our last segment, um, Anthony and Dean, I want each one of you to answer these songs rapid fire. So not a lot of expounding on it, yeah. just kind of a few words. Yeah. Favorite DBT song? God, that's impossible. Gun to your head. <clears throat> and not when the pin hits the shell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, if you hold my feet to the fire, I would... Uh, oh, gosh. I still get... Um, I get excited every time I hear Marry Me. Okay. It's the living bubba. It's, it, it's the song that drew me, and it's the song that, that continues okay. to feel that way. Favorite DVT album? I would go with Decoration Day. And, I, and I'm going to break my ranking rule. Yeah, it's probably Decoration Day. Okay. Favorite show by DVT and why? Oh, man. Uh, this will require a couple words, okay? Okay. All right, so uh, the very long story short is I got divorced in 2009, and one of my bucket list things to do that I had never gotten to do before was go to a Heathen's Homecoming. So the first Heathen's Homecoming I got to go to was in January of... Uh, 2010 and I would say that was that was my favorite because that is uh, everyone there is a fanatic there's no there's no people who buy tickets on the street coming into the club and like who is this band I want to I've heard of these guys everybody there is a, is a fan and everybody is a fanatic and a family member so I would say that was probably my favorite it's impossible the last one I went to okay <laughs> all right your favorite DBT lineup? Oh man, that's awesome! Why'd you come out with the hard questions? Um, like Dean said, everyone is a little different, and everyone has their own flavor and every take. But uh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go the fan route and go with the uh, Isbell lineup. It's the current lineup. I think that that they're. Um they're just a tight rock and roll band, and I think the best in the land. And I want to say this: I agree with that. They are they are musically as tight as they've ever been. They they sound better. I mean, because Drop by Truckers have been kind of, well, let's be honest, they've been sloppy live at times. Uh, and not anymore. Uh, but not anymore. They are tight, tight now. All right, song you wish they played more live. Oh gosh. Hmm. wasn't ready for this question um, I'm gonna go with a with an older song uh, I wish they would play Steve McQueen okay it's the southern thing although I understand why they don't mine would be Santa Fe I love that song yeah. I just love that song great song alright last one favorite DBT lyric oh this is easy um, my wife Megan actually had a, a keychain made for me, and it's a line from obviously Dean has mentioned several times the Living Bubba, uh, and I love this line so much. It's uh, some people stop living long before they die, 
and it's kind of a mantra, and I believe in that, and uh, and that's my favorite. I, I hate to do it, but I have to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we have an agreement on two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just I love that lyric in the company I keep. I get by on liquor, guns, and luck. Scared to death, which one's going to run out first? Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a fun one. Well, guys, I've enjoyed this. That's um, been great. Thank you. I it's think it's great. Uh, I think it was very easy. Uh, free-flowing, which is what a long-form podcast is supposed to be. Uh, I would love to have you guys on in the future. We maybe talk about DVT some more, or we can uh, talk about some other music. This is approaching Joe Rogan-length uh, podcast. Oh, man, right? this is an hour. We're at an hour and 40. I've done one that's three hours before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, where our, uh, we were, literally were running out of space on our recorder. Um, I do want to tell everybody, please follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed, Instagram at Digital Killed, the radio star. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you subscribe on iTunes, please leave us a review. As we explained before, uh, iTunes uses kind of like an algorithm, so they'll see that, uh, let's say you listen to, I don't know, the Adam Carolla show, and you uh, leave a, a comment on our podcast. They sync that up and say, oh, there's an Adam Carolla show listener to this. And the more you have of that, then iTunes will start saying, if you look for Adam Carolla show, well, frequent listeners also listen to Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. So that helps increase uh, increase our uh, visibility and uh, our numbers. Uh, like I said, mega, mega thanks to uh, Anthony and Dean. Anthony drove about two and a half hours down uh, for it. And we're probably going to suffer through an Ole Miss loss here in a minute uh, <laughs> on the TV. And a big thank you to uh, Dean uh, for coming. I, I really enjoyed it. This was the kind of thing when when I decided to start a podcast, this was one of the things that I really wanted to do. And uh, had you pegged the whole time for it, and then after bumping into Dean at the Sunvolt show, uh, it was a no-brainer. And I'm glad we were able to uh, make yeah. it work out. So I'm glad it was we did fun. Too. I thank you guys for uh, for coming on. And like I said, I hope to have we can do something in the future. Uh, you've got something coming up at your house in a couple of months that uh, may hopefully play into. Uh, our future podcast so uh, anyway we hope everybody has a good week and uh chris will be back with me um next week he had the week off and so uh, thank you for listening